Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and start off with a little bit of apocalyptic jeopardy, which is what we've been doing here lately. Uh, and I've got three questions for you this morning, so just shout it out if you think you know the answer. The first one is this. How many times does the world end in the book of Revelation? <laughs> one, two, three, or D, four, or more? Which one do you think? The answer is D. The world appears to end at least four times in the book of Revelation. Kind of a crazy idea, isn't it? But what this leads us to know is that Revelation is more cyclical than linear. In other words, if you read like 1 John, which is written by the same guy, John, who wrote Revelation, like if you try to diagram that, like do sentence diagrams like your English teacher made you do growing up, like you will just go crazy doing that because it's a big cycle. It's not about a straight line, it's about a cycle. Number two, which of the following words occur in the book of Revelation? A, Antichrist. B, Armageddon. C, Millennium. D, Rapture. Or E, none of the above. It's kind of a tricky question here. The answer is technically E, none of the above. But it does, the word Armageddon kind of appears, but it's really just um, the valley of Megiddo that we combine in our English translations to Armageddon. I don't expect any of you guys to know Greek. But there you go. None of those words. The Antichrist, that does not appear in the book of Revelation. It appears elsewhere in scriptures, but it talks about there being many Antichrists. Basically anybody who sets themselves up against Christ. Uh, millennium is a, a, a reference to the thousand years that we see in seven verses or so in Revelation, but we give it way too much attention for seven verses. And then the word rapture never actually occurs in the Bible at all, believe it or not. It is actually a Latin word that simply means out of, to be taken out of. And so when we talk about, I just prefer to use the phrase, Christ is returning, the return of Christ, because that's really what makes it what it is, right? Is that it's Christ that's returning. So what we see here is that Revelation is more about the obvious than the obscure. And so what happens is we can get bogged down in some of these details about the book of Revelation and wind up missing the big picture. The big picture is that Christ is on the throne of heaven and that he is returning to bring heaven and earth together as one. All right? Number three, you ready for this one? I guess not. Number three, are you ready for this one? All right. The doctrine of the secret or pre-tribulation rapture of the church where Christians are taken and non-believers are left behind. Remember that book series that sold 57 million copies or something like that? Uh, this um, was first introduced by A, Jesus in 30 AD, B, Paul in 50 AD, C, John in 90 AD, or D, Margaret MacDonald and J.N. Darby in 1827 to 1830. <laughs> I probably gave that one away, didn't I? The answer, of course, is D. For the first 1,800 years of the church, nobody believed in what is called a secret rapture. Now, of course, we believe in the return of Christ, as I've been talking about, and what happens there with the return of Christ. But the idea of Christians escaping before the trial is something that's vastly inconsistent with Scripture. Because where in the Bible else can you ever find Christians or followers of God or Yahweh escaping before the trial? And the answer is, is it does not happen. 
God always allows his people to go through a significant trial, and then he shows up in the middle to the end of the trial and rescues them. And so, that leads us to believe this as well, is that Revelation is not about what we will escape, but how we will endure. And let's be honest, there's a lot more movies made about people escaping things than there are about people enduring things. There's nothing attractive about endurance. There's nothing that sells books about that. But yet, when we understand that endurance is a vital human quality, then we will understand that this is something worth pursuing. One of the major themes in the book of Revelation is that we need to endure every trial that we face. We need to endure. But how do we do that? Well, there's a story that one day in Auschwitz, the notorious World War II concentration camp, a group of Jews who were suffering there during the Holocaust put God on trial. You heard that right. They put God on trial. They charged God with cruelty and betrayal, and forming a proper court, they appointed counselors for the prosecution and for the defense, and they heard all the arguments on both sides. At the end of the proceedings, they conferred on their findings, and at the verdict was unanimous. The rabbi stood up to make the formal pronouncement, this court finds God guilty as charged. Then after a few second pause, he said, now let us go and pray. Guilty as charged. Now let us go and pray. <laughs> it seems like a big contradiction, doesn't it? What a response. I'm so frustrated that God hasn't healed my father. Now let us go and pray. I don't understand why I lost my job and can't find another. Where is God at in the midst of all of this? Let us go and pray. We feel utterly abandoned by God. Now let us go and pray. Almost seems like a Sunday school answer, doesn't it? And yet what we see in the book of Revelation is that prayer is central to enduring. If we are going to be an enduring people, then we must be a praying people. Think about where John is at at this point in his life. The book of Revelation is written in about 90 AD. John was probably a teenager when he started following Christ, which makes up for a lot of the things that he said that were kind of boneheaded. And so here he is, he's an old man. Literally, all the other Christ followers, all the other apostles, the other 11, they all have died as martyrs. John is the last one living. Some people work their whole lives to be able to retire to an island and get away from people. John has served his entire life and is now exiled on an island away from the people he wants to serve. And in the middle of all of this, he has this vision. He has this vision of Christ where he is challenged 
to endure and to teach endurance as they look forward to the return of Christ. And even though we look back at the first century of Christianity and see the great successes that they had, living in the midst of it, you have to realize that even though it was wildly successful, it was not popular. The early Christians were still a dramatic minority on earth. They were still, actually they were just really starting to be heavily persecuted at this point in time. The persecution they faced early on was from uh, Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus. They, of course, were Jewish people themselves, most of them. And now they're facing persecution from the Roman government, the most powerful government in the world. And in the middle of it, this question, you wonder if John would have stopped and asked, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And so we saw last week in the book of Revelation, we saw that in, uh, in chapter uh, 5, verse 8, we saw Jesus opening the seven scrolls, or being worthy, being declared worthy of opening the seven scrolls. And in this great surprise of heaven that we looked at last week, in Revelation 5, 8, it says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is no cereal bowl that they are being stored in, but a golden bowl by the altar in heaven are the prayers of the followers of Christ. And this leads us to chapter 6, where we start to see the seals are being opened by Christ. But if you're expecting things just to start going right for the church all of a sudden, you would be wrong. The first seal that's open, this is the four horsemen of the book of Revelation. The first seal we see in chapter 6, verse 1 and following, is the white horse. The rider on the white horse. And as we see here, this is the, God, or this is the uh, conquest. This is all about conquest, about the empires that would come and rise and fall. The second seal is the red horse. This is the war horse. Wars are going to keep on coming and going, even though that Christ is opening the seals. The third horse is the black horse, which is famine, where they literally have to work a day's wages to get a quart of barley or wheat. And yet they have wine and oil and plenty, and that's what famine is. You don't have enough of what you need but you have plenty of all the things you don't really need. I think we have a spiritual famine in our culture right now. And the fourth horse is the pale horse, which is death. And so what we see, these first four seals, part of you just wants to say, stop, Jesus. Stop opening these seals because this just looks like the same old stuff over and over and over again. We're going down the same path over and over. We see these same... Uh, you know, these same governments being set up. We see these same wars being fought. We see this same devastation. We see this same death. We see this same famine going on. And so do we get to the fifth seal. Because it's clear that God is allowing humanity's devastation course to continue going. And it leads us to the fifth seal. American author Annie Dillon has suggested that the chief theological question of all time is this. 
What in the Sam Hill is going on here anyway? That's good, isn't it? It says, when he opened the fifth seal, Revelation 6, 9, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. So here we see the souls of the martyrs under the altar in heaven. And it says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We have a messed up view of heaven, don't we? We have this view of, oh, I bet your grandma's just watching over you. Or when a famous athlete, when their grandpa or dad dies, you say, I bet you, man, my dad was just watching down from heaven on me. It's just so trite. Do you think once we see God face to face, we're really going to care about sports? You think we're really going to care about who wins the ball game? Here's what they're crying out for. They're crying out for justice. They're crying out for heaven and earth to be made one. For God to bring justice against the evildoers who are against the kingdom of God. If grandma is doing anything in heaven, she's crying out for heaven and earth to be made one. How long, O Lord? And it says, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, those who, who were to be killed as, if them, as they themselves had been. Well, that's a refreshing answer, isn't it? How long, O oh Lord? Oh, well, we just need a few more people to die. Doesn't sound like the most comforting answer, does it? But we see that they're given white robes to wear. White robes are a sign of purity. They're a sign of promise. In essence, they were given an engagement ring. They were saying, there's going to be a day when this ends. There's going to be a day when heaven and earth do become one. There's going to be a day when Christ does return and bring the judgment that we want, that this world so desperately needs. 2020 is a year where we have to ask the question, how long, don't we? How long is this going to continue? And the words of break, he says, have you ever asked God, how long, O Lord? How long are the wicked going to get away with their wickedness? How long are the ungodly going to rule politics and kingdoms? How long will the arrogant get away with this brashness and pride How long will the child pornographer continue to prey on innocent children? How long will the child slave traffic continue in this cold world? How long will the feeling unfeeling continue to abort babies? How long will we have to suffer from speaking the truth? God says, wait a little while longer. I spoke with a teacher in our congregation this week. She had a conversation with a first-year teacher this year. Can you imagine being a first-year teacher in 2020? Graduating from college with a calling to invest in the lives of young people, and yet many of those young people you've never even met face-to-face yet. And she was saying, this young teacher, this isn't what I got into teaching for. The encouragement of our church member, the senior teacher, those times will come, but you have to stick it out. 
You have to get through this year. Things will be different soon. How long, O oh Lord? I want to encourage you this morning by telling you this. How long is one of the most repeated phrases in Scripture when it comes to prayers? How long should be a regular part of our prayer life? In fact, how long is not a prayer of doubt? How long is a prayer of faith? Because how long is insinuating, is it praying that God is faithful? That He could be doing something, and that He will be doing something. We're just struggling to figure out how much longer it's going to be before He actually does what we want Him to do. How long is a prayer of faith? not of doubt. And so here is this fifth seal where they're praying the souls of those who have died, those who are still waiting on the resurrection of their own bodies. It says in verse 15, after the sixth seal is opened, that then the kings of earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The sixth seal, things finally start to happen after the people pray. And listen to the question that all those people had as they were begging for the rocks to fall on them, as they start to see the judgment of God and realize that they were not going to be on the right side of history. Here is what they say. For the great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? And that's what we see at the sixth seal. We see earthquakes, and we see islands and mountains destroyed. The sun is turned black. The whole moon turned red. The stars fell to the earth. The sky rolls up like a scroll. All these things are happening, and the answer of those who are being destroyed is who can stand? And the answer apparently should be nobody. Nobody can withstand this. We're all going to die. This is it. This is the end. Might as well just have an asteroid hit the earth. This is it. But in Revelation, that is the contrast that sets up chapter 7. That is what sets up, and God immediately shows us the ones who will stand, the ones who will endure. And so we see here as we shift over into chapter 7, verse 1 through 8, it immediately starts showing this, but it's a dual picture, so I'll start in chapter 9. After this I looked, remember last week, and behold, and look, God's going to show us who can stand. God's going to show us who can endure all these trials. And he says, after this, I looked and behold and look a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and land languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. That's a scene that sounds familiar, isn't it? They're welcoming the King. They cried out with a loud voice, before we saw them crying out, How long, O Lord? Listen to what they're crying out now. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, all those things we saw last week, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! 
blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might and every other word you can come up with that is good be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where do they come? I said to him, sir, you're one of the elders, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now we can focus all day long on what the great tribulation is or is not. I would suggest to you that the first century audience, they would have thought that they were in the great tribulation. They were the ones who were undergoing persecution. And every audience ever since then has thought that maybe they are in the great tribulation. The point is not whether they were in the great tribulation. The point is that they endured. And whether we are in a period of time that's a great tribulation, it's just, that, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that we are enduring trials. That we are looking to God and we are choosing to persevere because that's what the people of God do. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I don't do a lot of laundry but I know that red is not something that makes something else white. Except in this case. Except when it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And in verse 15 through 17, it says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun will shake, shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Oh, how we long for that holy hand to grace our cheek and to comfort our hearts. What we see here is that the focus has clearly gone on from how long to how many. One of the keys to enduring in prayer is to understand that prayer empowers us to endure with the eternity of others in mind. John here, part of a small Christian sect in essence, Christianity is a sect, I should say. He sees too many to even count. How encouraging that must have been for him. And how much we need to be encouraged today that prayer empowers us to endure with the eternity of others in mind. A guy I count as a mentor, Chuck Sackett, often goes over to Eastern Europe in the former Soviet bloc and trains pastors. While he was there once teaching a class, they found out that one of their fellow students was in prison for preaching the gospel. He said, I sat and listened to a group of Eastern European believers pray for an imprisoned comrade. All the Western U.S. prayers were, God set him free. Those far more used to not always getting their way in life prayed, God, keep him faithful. God, use his life as a witness. God, be honored despite the outcome. I wonder if you'd be willing to shift your language 
to God set me free. God give me more. To God help me endure. Help me to be faithful no matter what. And then in chapter 8, we see prayer emerge once again. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Up to this point, we have not seen silence in heaven, have we? We have seen prayers and worship happening over and over and rejoicing and celebration. Why was there silence in heaven? Some of you who are mothers are saying, I would love to have a half hour of silence. Why is there silence in heaven? Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The silence in heaven existed so that our prayers could be heard and finally answered. The one thing that can silence heaven is our prayers. It's like there's a voice from the throne saying, shh, listen, my people are crying. And God is about to answer. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. What we have here is basically a prayer cocktail. Well, what's going on is God's taking the prayers, the angels are taking the prayers, and he's mixing them with incense. The incense is to purify them. Yeah, it's okay to pray your heart. It's okay to pray, because what happens is that the Holy Spirit, that God ends up, ends up purifying our prayers. And then he like, basically it says that then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. The fire is the Holy Spirit. And it's like our prayers exist in their form. As, as impure as they can be, there are prayers, there are cries, there are longings. God mixes some of that incense in there to purify them and to make them holy. And then he takes some fire that is the Holy Spirit, and then he like wads them up and just throws them to earth. And it says that there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. That's what I call a prayer meeting right there. Church, let me ask you this. If there is silence in heaven for half an hour so that our prayers can be heard and God mixes them with incense and answers them with the power of the Holy Spirit, what if we valued our prayers as much as heaven does? What if we took our prayers as seriously as God does? Church, this is crying out how long, and I don't know how long until he finally returns. I just don't know. But what I can promise you is this. When he does return, he will return with finality. I imagine a future day when we gather in heaven, when there is no more suffering, no more tears, no more death, no more sin, and we put God on trial right there in heaven. Our charge will be different, though. 
We will charge God with doing everything possible to redeem anyone from his good creation that would reach out and take his hand. We would form a proper court and look back at the mountains of evidence throughout all of history and hear all of the arguments. And at the end of our proceedings, we would confer our findings and the verdict would be unanimous. And one of us would stand and make a formal pronouncement. The court finds God guilty as charged. Guilty of doing everything possible to redeem anyone who would take his hand. Until then, let us go and pray.